Welcome to the Innovation Room. If you're a business leader, a change champion, or someone who wants to feel a little closer to how digital transformation is changing the world, put your smartphone aside, sit back, and indulge in the world of software, the world of endless possibilities. Welcome back. This is part two of the technology and the future of legal services for SMEs with Greg Vincent of Moranco Solicitors. We had a chat about has the legal sector reached that tipping point where the amount of change and the pace at which it is happening is getting out of control and the law firms are facing an existential situation, thrive or die. If you haven't listened to the part one, I do encourage you to listen to that first to get some context as well as some background on Greg and his work. We have talked a lot in the past few months about the customer experience of the legal service. So I think that would be massively impacted as the next step for those forward-thinking law firms, regardless of their size, because you're right, there are a lot of scattered pieces of technology that law firm has been using, but the clients don't necessarily see the benefit of it. Whereas if some transformation happens from the client experience point of view, then they are going to start seeing more and more value in, you know, the transformation of the firms, which is bring us in another interesting point. Isn't it what the fully digital law firms that you don't know where they exist um, offer? And what's your views on them? Because they are kind of like considered your disruptors of the industry. But what do you think of them? I have my views as, as a customer, but I'm interested to see what you think. So it's interesting because amongst the disruptors, and there are a few traditional law firm models, but the two that I I see regularly, one is, as you say, virtual law firms. Uh, The other are sort of technology products that, for instance, deal with things like setting up an EMI share scheme or dealing with setting up a shareholders agreement or different rounds of fundraising for a startup. They are sort of web-based businesses and I'm not going to be disparaging about them because I don't work with them myself. But, you know, if you look at their terms and conditions, they quite often say these documents are for information purposes only. We're not lawyers, so you go and get legal advice, even though you've spent a premium amount of money on, on getting those services. It is really sort of pre-prepared documents, but they are a disruptor. And, and it is clearly right that because the heavy lifting can be done, what they're missing, of course, is the expertise. <laughs> they're missing the sharp end part of it, which is, you know, we can't really make this bespoke for you. If you want an EMI scheme, but you've got some other issue going on, like you've got some EIS and you've got a growth share scheme. Oh, you know, we're a bit stuck. You know, we don't quite know how to shoehorn our documents into your needs, which is where quite often, you know, we'll have clients come to us and say, could you do just that bit for us? It's tricky because the heavy lifting has been digitized. Technology solved that problem. We're going to provide the real value. So that's obviously a challenge. But those are disruptors, those providers of services. But the virtual law firms, as you say, are as well. And the reason why the virtual law firms have been around, I think the first virtual law firm was set up in the early 2000s. Some of the real sort of larger ones set up sort of more 2010 around then after the model sort of gain some traction. But they work in a way where 
by lawyers can live anywhere um, around the country. It doesn't matter where they're based. They're able to use very good technology for the purpose of practice management. They're able to deploy technology for virtual meetings with clients. You know, virtual, vir- I was trying to explain this to my mother the other day and she was trying to find it very difficult to understand what a virtual lawyer was. And of course, they're not virtual lawyers. They're, yeah. they're, they're 100% lawyers. They just work for a they're virtual. Human, they're human lawyers who work virtually. <laughs> they work for a virtual law firm, which basically means it's not a bricks and mortar firm. But of course, a lot of these sort of virtual firms are sort of taking this back to needing to have premises because those individuals working for those virtual law firms do want some human interaction. They do want an opportunity to be able to go to an office. They do want to be able to talk to colleagues on a project they're working on where it's cross-disciplinary and there are sort of corporate property and employment lawyers working on it. And obviously, sometimes the clients do need to come in and speak to their lawyers face-to-face. Much is made, even those virtual firms with the ability to, to go to an office. But those virtual firms have been disruptive to traditional firm models. But of course, there's no reason why traditional firms can't deal with with that by ensuring that technology that's now available and has been available for some time, but that can be sort of knitted into a traditional firm for the ability to have lawyers with followings to store more traditional firms and to deploy that technology to provide services to their clients. But like most disruptors, you know, that disruption can cause innovation. Sometimes it can it can kill the existing market, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I think we can look to deploy some of that and uh, work together. What, what do you think is going to be the next big thing in your wish list of innovations in the legal sector? As we are in the innovation room. For my for my firm? Your firm or for the whole industry? Okay, well, they're different answers because for my sector, having the ability for clients to engage better with us, quicker with us, for us to be more agile in the way that we engage with our clients, to end the digital file attached to email, that sort of nonsense. That's where I see. And also our knowledge management is really important because one of the biggest assets of our business is our intellectual property uh, and how we deal with that and how we bed that in how we turn that into technology that can be that isn't just turning into a precedent and then having that precedent rolled out again but bedding that technology knitting it into something that is permanent something that can be deployed in a very sophisticated way the knowledge management you know protecting that ip deploying that ip and the way we engage with clients so that they feel that development right at the front of the service level that's really important to me mm-hmm. to start Law itself, the legal sector itself, and without getting too much into jurisprudence, like it's it's probably, you know, there's a there's a lot to be made of how technology can help access to justice for those seeking the court's assistance disputes. I think only half of those statistics are very difficult to keep up with, but certainly far, far less than should be have access to justice. The ability to be able to use courts and use court time and to use litigation uh, resolution, all those sorts of things to, to reach a conclusion to people who are in disputes. You know, technology is going to be really helpful for that and continue to be helpful for that. I know that there have been issues with video hearings. I know it's not been ideal, but you know, I don't think we're going to go back. I think there's going to be an element of that going forward, a large element of that going forward. People talk about you know, the ability to solve disputes with technology. It's a tricky one because, yes, absolutely, I can see the day there is no reason why not. In fact, law firms not using artificial intelligence in different forms could be negligent going forward at some point. But to an extent, when you look at disputes, it's a really difficult thing because, you know, as I said, it's this human element. How, how good the AI is going to be? Certainly for those of us who studied law and, and often for people who, who are interested in legal, you know, the way that the law evolves, courts do not just take legislation and deploy it in some sort of algorithmic way. That's not how, that's not what they do. Yeah. You know, quite often, the law... We don't have, from 
technical point of view, we don't have the data for artificial intelligence to work. You need to still have structured data and try to form some sort of a structure within the data that you have. And you have to have available big available data to work with. The problems with that is legal firms, legal data that we have, they're on a scanned, at best, scanned papers. At Mm -hmm. worst, they are filed papers. So we don't have like enough. And then there is that privacy and like data protection. And I said, they are not available data for you to work with and pass on some training data for an algorithm to learn. So there is infrastructural problem with When I look, for instance, in my practice area, how many times have I had to have members of the team search through contracts on virtual data rooms to see when they're doing a, a set of the business, like not the company, but the business that the company owns, looking for change of control clauses in documents to make sure that, you know, if you try and sell the business and I transfer the contract, it's not going to trigger a termination or a, a notice provision or a consent provision. Now, OCR, even in PDF documentation, the technology is going to be there. I haven't seen it yet in the VDRs that I'm using, but to just run through those documents in seconds and find those change of control clauses. I think the, the IT is there, the technology is there, whether or not there is sufficient confidence in it that you know it would avoid a lawyer needing to look at it sort of themselves and read each word. I don't know, but it's going to get there. It's always a transition. None of this, because with digital transformation, the most difficult part is not the technology, is the behavior, change of behavior of the people within a business or, or within the customers or within the suppliers or however you group them. The change of people's behavior is the hardest because we human most of the time are resistant to change. And that's the difficult part yeah. of it. I suppose, as, as, as I said before, the, there's some very expensive, very sophisticated VDR uh, software out there that perhaps, you know, larger practices and bigger sort of firms with clients with deeper pockets are using. And it's going to take some time possibly for that software to trickle its way down into the more cost effective VDRs. This is part and parcel of that technology being tried, tested, being becoming less innovative and more standard for some of the products that we use out there. Sorry, the other thing I was going to say is you've got that that's very straightforward to some extent and the IT is there. But looking back at dispute resolution, courts don't just look at legislation and as I say, algorithmically just pass it through and just say, okay, this is a yes or a no, this is a win or a lose. Some of the biggest, most important cases out there, whether it be understanding that provocation when somebody kills is not just about in that moment. There was, there was a time when one had to look really carefully, particularly looking at society, if somebody could be subject to domestic abuse, and it's kind of like, that could be a slow burn, actually. You know, let's look at it differently. And so in order to, to come to a, a decision that made sense for society in the way in which these rules work, courts have to decide to slightly deter or to sometimes quite widely deter from what it is that possibly the legislation maker was thinking when they drafted that piece of statute. And that's because Parliament does not keep up with yeah. the courts. The courts decide things every day. Parliament takes forever. Often, those decision makers, those courts, will AI be able to look at the wider picture, the wider human issue, you know, society as it changes, as we understand more about you know, how we work, how we how we live differently and work differently together and it has to be updated. These, these are things that are a challenge for technology. So you've got that right at the other end compared to my now seemingly very <laughs> yeah very, yeah very much so because uh, you then you add to that complexity of the technology itself and the things that normally emerges with advancement in technology that we didn't even expect or foresee that is going to happen which you can see now after 
social media being around for, what, 20 years, now we still don't have proper regulation. We don't even, like the courts don't know how to deal with it, like the governments don't know what to do with it, the parliaments don't know what to do with it, and it's making massive impact on the society. So technology moves really fast. It doesn't wait for our parliaments to catch up. It doesn't wait for our courts to catch up. And and it's like having that understanding, like I I don't ever claim that I understand every piece of software technology because it, it is so wide and it's getting bigger and bigger. It's expanding bigger and bigger and it needs very specialized people in every aspect to even make sense of what's happening. So regulating, mm. creating, making it work for when it needs to make a judgment, they're all massive. I agree, that's like completely on the other side of the spectrum. But I think there is a lot to be done before even we think about that. There's a lot to be done in our day-to-day life, closer to our the, the majority of the people's experience. And I think the, the biggest question for the SMEs, law firms included, is that where to start, where to where to begin, where do you invest? And that kind of big conversation about how do I invest in technology or what, how do I plan out my digital transformation journey that I get the best return on the investment that we are making and it's an ongoing investment and what do we do with it? Which brings me back to, to our DGENS piece of technology that we have created. And I remember I was having conversation with you around the trademark and the legal side of things where you ask, oh, talk to me about this. What is this thing that you're you're creating? And then after we had we had some conversation, you, you wanted that to be run on your yeah. firm and you went through the process and we created a roadmap for your digital transformation. How do you think that's helpful for the SMEs, for legal firms to be able to make sense of these ever-changing, fast-changing environment especially when they're not as big as firms who have a big department look after their technology we were probably doing it in a more relaxed fashion without putting a name to it a couple of years ago but last year we just decided that two of our equity partner teams the leaders within our business would focus on technology be technology partners who would look carefully at what we currently have and what we need in place in order to be able to do all the things we've been talking about. And we also needed a partner for our firm to work with to help us do that, which was great because we were already working with geeks and we already knew you well. And as you say, this product, this service to gents really, really was on all fours with what we were looking for. The way I look at it, I don't I don't want to describe your business for you, but the way I look at it as a, as a client of that service was, it was affordable technology management consultancy. So rather than having to bear the very large cost of someone coming into the business themselves and look at our business from the inside and spend days and weeks and months with us, what happened was you scheduled sort of interviews with the key people in in our business. Carefully, I'm assuming, proprietary sort of questions with a back end that allows it to spit out exactly the sort of answers that can help a client. And we spent sort of a few months on that. And what we got was a report that was so helpful because what it did, and I think this is really important, it told us a couple of sort of things that we didn't know, but it told us a lot of things that we did know. And I think that's really good because we had been thinking about it. And it was really effective at ensuring that we had pressure tested what we thought our business needed by going through that exercise because it created that confidence. There are aspects of that presentation that 
that you guys did that you know i will never forget that are uh, I, numbers that i will never forget wasted costs days of fearless time that are unnecessary doing all the things that we don't need to do anymore and and then the road mapping journey of how to get through that for us it was a a more viable alternative to full technology management consultancy but also as i say the process the end game for us you know the end game from the process for us was very helpful because it provided some real meat to the bones of what we thought we needed to do in order to develop one of the problems of digital transformation is getting buy-in from the team and momentum and having everybody rowing on the same direction Uh accepting the same priorities and things like that how was that Because one of our goals is to bring that harmony into the business as opposed to everyone thinks, oh, why my needs are not being met, why I am not getting the new system or the new uh, whatever platform or update or whatever, that everyone sees this is the direction the business needs to go and these are the priorities that the business needs to address. Firstly, you canvassed views, answers, opinions from from throughout our business. It wasn't just corporate, it was family, it was dispute resolution, it was you know, tax, it was it was everybody. And I don't think that the end product ended up being, you know, the report that you prepared ended up homogenizing the separate issues because what it cleverly did was it looked at what were the most prevalent issues across the board. It didn't knock out by sort of, you know, <laughs> antagonistic concerns were just equaled out. That's not how it, how it worked. But also, when it comes to explaining, describing and almost persuading the partnership or others as to what you think is uh, as a vision for the future of the firm. One can say we need to stop doing this, but it's very powerful to say we spend 1,234 days a year sending digital files on email. That's a very powerful thing, you know, to say to people because it lands. You know, why are we doing that? The data was really helpful to underpin in a more granular way, why it is that we need to do things differently. As again, again, it's not an original thought because we know our business. We know our business well. And I think most businesses know what they could do better. But what it is, is it's it's verification and it's putting some real numbers, some real thought and some actual options, some real world options behind what we think we need to do to uh, to improve our business. Well, I'm excited to see what More & Co is going to do in the next 12 months and beyond. It's been a real pleasure, Greg, as always. And when we get to talk about the legal sector and its future and technology, it's always very enjoyable to talk to you. Thanks for joining me in the Innovation Room. And I, I hope to chat with you like in a few months and see what has changed. Thank you very much for inviting me, Samaya. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the Innovation Room. Want to learn more about what we do? Or want to be our next guest? Head over to the Geeks website, www.geeks.ltd. We look forward to welcoming you again soon.